I invite you now to open your Bible or one of the pew Bibles to the book of the prophet Isaiah for the reading of God's holy word, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Let us ask the Lord whose spirit has breathed out and preserved this word for us in scripture to breathe upon us afresh and to open our minds with spiritual understanding and to open our hearts with true faith that we might receive his word and respond. To the glory of his name. Our gracious and everlasting God, we give you thanks that you have looked upon us in mercy and have sent your Son to be our Savior. In his name, O Lord, we pray for the blessing of your Holy Spirit upon us afresh. We pray that you will open our minds, enlighten the eyes of our hearts, grant us grace, O Lord, to receive and to believe your word and to respond with joyful faith, glad obedience to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Let us hear the word of God. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox." The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever to his name. Be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. I want to invite you, please, to think with me about a very familiar passage of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, To every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. 
And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Do you remember that picture of paradise? A very good world of peace, plenty, beauty, bounty, filled with life, the joy of living, a world in which all things and all their diversity lived in a harmonious order, in harmonious fellowship with the Creator. That was the paradise of the very good world which God created, the center point of which was the Garden of Eden. But you know what happened. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband who was with her And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then, to Adam God said, Cursed, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the Lord God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Remember that? Paradise. Lost. And as the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men and creation was subjected to futility in bondage to decay. The world in which we now live. The opening chapters of Genesis, the opening chapters of the Bible, is the backdrop of our scripture reading for today from Isaiah 11. Because the question arising from Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man and the fall of creation with man, the question arising is, what now will become of God's fallen creation? Now in Genesis 3, we hear promises and we see signs of redemption. There is the promise spoken by God. The promise of a man born of woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And then God clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of an animal, the first sacrifice offered up by God himself. Remember that? In order to clothe the nakedness of Adam and Eve. But even at that point, we are looking, as it were, into a glass darkly, awaiting further revelation. This prophecy from Isaiah chapter 11, the peaceable kingdom, Eden restored, speaks to us about what God has done and what God will do to redeem his creation from sin and death. Isaiah 11 speaks to us about the reverse of the curse. 
Now, last Sunday, when we read the prophecy from Isaiah 9, we noted the point that interpreting Old Testament prophecy is often like looking through binoculars or through a telescope. You see different things at different distances, but they all appear nearer than they actually are, and you see them all at the same time. And in the case of Old Testament prophecy, there was often a fulfillment in the near future. Then there was another fulfillment down the timeline, and then further down the timeline, and then further down the timeline, all the way to the end of history in the last day. As is the case in Isaiah chapter 9, so also again it is the case in Isaiah 11. This passage was written more than 700 years before the birth of Jesus. It prophesies the birth of the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The rod of Jesse. We, we sang of the rod of Jesse. O come thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. There shall come forth a shoot or a rod from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The imagery is that of a green shoot. You've seen it. A green shoot, a sprig springing forth from a dead stump. New life springing forth out of death. Jesse was the father of David the shepherd boy who became the king of Old Testament Israel. The stump of Jesse, the dead stump, is a symbolic image of Old Testament Judea after it suffered the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and the subsequent exile in Babylon in the 6th century B.C. Isaiah, the prophet, 700 years before Christ was actually prophesying, he was prophesying that Judea would become like a dead stump because they were going to be destroyed by the Babylonians. They would be carried off into exile. Isaiah prophesied that and it came to pass in the near future. Isaiah prophesied that the nation of Judah would be as good as dead, having no life within itself to sustain itself. A dead stump, the stump of Jesse, the nation of Judah. But after this devastating judgment, God would send forth a Savior, a spirit-anointed king, a descendant of David, coming out of Jesse, a descendant of David who would restore peace to his people and to all creation, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Well, that spirit-anointed king, of course, has been revealed. He has come, Jesus, the son of David. Born in Bethlehem. Verse 1 is a prophecy of Jesus' first advent, his first coming, his birth in Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, Jesus himself being of the lineage of Jesse and David. And the verses which follow are in part a prophecy of Jesus' earthly ministry. So now we move further down the timeline, 700 years. The ministry of Jesus, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. When the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that she would conceive and bear a son, he said to her, 
The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. The origin of this life is directly from God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' conception by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by any human power, that's the point. So that from the moment of his conception in Mary's womb, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him as prophesied here by Isaiah. And Jesus' life and ministry were characterized by the wisdom, power, knowledge of the Spirit of the Lord in fulfillment of this prophecy. Repeatedly, the Gospels speak of Jesus as knowing the thoughts of others, particularly the evil thoughts of those who opposed him. His mighty deeds and his bold words came through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus cast out demons by the Spirit of God. And when Jesus worked miracles, the crowd exclaimed, We never saw anything like this. When Jesus taught, he taught as one who had authority. That is the authority of the Spirit of God. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 11 in other ways. During his earthly ministry, the scripture says, for example, verse 3, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Well, to delight in the fear of the Lord is to delight in doing God's will. This is exactly how Jesus went about his ministry. Jesus said, I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me, John chapter 5. In this way, he showed his delight in the fear of the Lord. He did only his Father's will. Now, you remember, you remember Jesus' decision, he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. You remember Jesus' decision, his decision as judge, When the woman caught in adultery was brought before him, he first said to her accusers, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Go ahead. And then to the woman, Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, surely, you see, in that case, Jesus did not judge by what his eyes saw. Oh, yes, his eyes saw a woman who was guilty, caught. But that's not the only thing he saw. And he did not decide that dispute by what his ears heard. Caught in the act. No, with righteousness he judged that poor woman. And he made his decision with equity, favoring her in her vulnerable condition, knowing that he himself would be condemned for her. So in these and other ways, Isaiah 11 speaks of Jesus' birth and his earthly ministry, the, the already fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, which has already taken place in history. But then there is the not yet, further down the timeline, not yet. 
Isaiah 11 speaks of that which has not yet taken place, at least not fully. Portions of this prophecy speak of Christ's final advent, the last judgment, the unveiling of the new creation in all its glorious perfection. Indeed, on that great and terrible day of the Lord, he will judge the world in righteousness with perfect wisdom and knowledge. Jesus Christ will judge the secrets of men, and he will discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Because no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Those are quotations from Paul's letter to the Romans and the letter to the Hebrews. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed, Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the dead. Acts chapter 17 Verse 31, when he comes in power and glory to judge the living and the dead, the prophecy of Isaiah will be fulfilled. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. We ought to live every day in the light of that great and terrifying final reality and flee the wrath of God by casting ourselves on Jesus Christ. This prophecy assures the victory of God over all the powers of evil, the casting out of evil from his creation forever. His eternal kingdom will come in which his righteousness and his faithfulness will reign without opposition. And in that glorious, peaceable kingdom of the new creation, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox." The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We ought to live with that hope burning in our hearts every day in this sad world. This imagery of the peaceable kingdom, it brings to mind, it portrays for us the peace, the shalom of the Garden of Eden before sin and death corrupted the creation. Now, we, we may ask, will these things be literally true? Will the lion really eat straw like the ox? Or is this metaphorical? It's poetic. It's a figurative way of expressing the reality of Christ's glorious and peaceable kingdom which is beyond our capacity to comprehend, as the scripture says. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Well, which is it? Is it it literal or is it figurative? Perhaps the answer is yes. (laughs) And why not both? This passage, it is poetry. It is God-breathed, spirit-inspired, beautiful poetry, figurative imagery. Yes, which speaks divine truth. 
intended to give us a vision of that peace which will fill the earth when Christ comes again. There will be no bloodshed, no death. Those who might naturally in a fallen world have been enemies of one another will be reconciled to one another. This is a vision of a world in which the full reality of Christ's work will be completely realized and and revealed. This is the reverse of the curse. I mean, we, we read this kind, of, this kind of language in which creation is personified in our call to worship, Psalm 96. This is, about, this is about the last day. This is about the second coming. This is about the renewal of all creation and the reverse of the curse. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. The trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Sounds like the coming of the Messiah to bring his kingdom in all its glory. And then we read from the book of the Revelation, chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This is the restoration of God's very good creation, never to fall again. Never again to have sin and death enter it. No corruption. No death. As Paul wrote in his letter to the Colossians, in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself, to make peace with all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So... It's because, you see, of, it's because of Adam's sin that we live in this world cursed with thorns and thistles and decay and death. But don't forget, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Prophecy of Isaiah 11 is a prophecy of the Garden of Eden restored on earth, a prophecy of the redemption of all creation, a picture of the curse reversed. And notice that even the serpent, the creature, not Satan himself, the, the, the creaturely serpent, the cobra, is redeemed as a child's playmate. And, and, and since the redemption and reconciliation of, of all things and, and the peace that is made by the blood of Christ covers all creation, since that is the scope of Christ's work, the renewal of the cosmos, well, is it, is it too much to imagine that in that glorious eternal day, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion together, and a little child shall lead them. Well, that's the vision to which we're called. And ultimately, the point is quite clearly this. In a way beyond all our imagining, God's creation corrupted by sin and death in bondage to decay will be redeemed and restored in everlasting peace, never again to be disturbed by evil, violence, sin, and death. The world for which this fallen world longs, 
is promised in the kingdom of Christ. But how can this be? How can we be sure that God will renew and redeem his creation and restore the world to its Eden-like existence? How do we know that? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh. That's how we know. Because the Creator Himself has already come into this world and subjected Himself to the curse of death which He Himself pronounced upon Adam. He took upon Himself the curse which he himself placed upon all creation. Let me ask you, after he was arrested during his trial, what kind of crown did he wear? Thorn. He put himself under. He bore the curse. That's how he came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Because his cleansing, redeeming, saving blood flows to all the world. He delivered us from the curse by himself becoming a curse, dying the accursed death we deserved. What, ha- what has to happen in order for a deathless creation to come into existence? How can a deathless creation be? Someone has to destroy death itself. Someone has to rid the world of the power of death. Jesus Christ has done that by subjecting himself to an accursed death and rising victorious over it. He has made peace by the blood of his cross and a day is coming when the glory of his redeemed creation will be revealed. So now here's something for us to consider in terms of practical application for the Advent season. There's a very real sense in which the secular cultural observance of Christmas is actually a distraction, not only from the meaning of Christ's birth, but also from the hope of Christ's coming again. The hope of glory has been obscured by the trivial glitter of this world. The trivial glitter of this world numbs us, distra- numbs us to the pain and, and distracts us from the brokenness of this world. It is a grand distraction. 
And Advent is actually a season to look at the world and all of its brokenness and its sadness and its sin sickness and its darkness, its decay, and then cry out from the depths of our souls, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. As strange and countercultural as it may seem, these weeks of Advent are actually a time for us as Christians to take seriously the sin sickness, the sadness, the brokenness, the grief, the pain, the tears, the bloodshed, the wrongness of this world and our own personal lives. And then in faith and with hope inspired by the prophetic word of God, lift our hearts heavenward with the prayer, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Hasten the day when the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Bring your kingdom in all its fullness. Restore Eden. Set creation free from its bondage to decay so that we may see that day and live in that kingdom in which the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion together and a little child shall lead. Now, I'm not saying, please, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we can't have festive fun during these weeks. I love it. But I am simply pointing out that for us who profess faith in Christ as Savior of the world, Advent is that season when it is good for us also to focus our hearts on the longing for his glorious return and the coming of his kingdom in all its fullness when he will put to right everything that is wrong and he will make everything sad become untrue. Therefore, The present moment. Point number three. We're on this timeline. We live in the in-between times. We live in between Christ's first coming and his last coming. And the life which we are called to begin to live here and now on earth, now in the in-between time, is the life of the peaceable kingdom. This prophecy of the peaceable kingdom, Eden restored, is a vision which, however imperfectly, incompletely, yes, imperfectly, incompletely, yes, it is to be an increasing reality in our own lives here and now as believers in Christ, as the church of Jesus Christ, as the new covenant people of God. If we have been reconciled to God through the blood of the cross, if we are new creatures, think about it, If we are new creatures in Christ, then we who were wolves by nature have been born anew and transformed by Christ's spirit so that we may now dwell peaceably with lambs. Through the spirit of Christ dwelling within us, we are cobras whose venom has been milked so that instead of wounding others, we are to be so harmless that a child could play with us without threat of harm. That's the vision for us today as the people of God, the citizens of Christ's peaceable kingdom on earth. This is what the church of Jesus Christ should be like and and look like and live like, a vision of the peaceable kingdom for the world to see. When the world sees the vision of the peaceable kingdom in us, then the world will see the King of Peace, Jesus Christ, in us. 
As you know, the world is a jungle. Red tooth and claw, kill or be killed, eat or be eaten, fight or flee. Not so in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which even here and now is to be visible in our life together as his body, the church. You see, this prophecy has to do not only with the redemption and transformation of the whole creation, which it does, but also with the redemption and transformation of our nature, the transformation of a sinful, rebellious, hateful nature into a spirit-filled, spirit-controlled, Christ-like nature of gentleness and peace, faithfulness and love. We need to hear this passage not only as a prophecy that has been fulfilled in the birth and ministry of Jesus, not, not only as a prophecy that will be fulfilled completely and perfectly when Jesus comes in power and glory, but also as a prophecy which is to be fulfilled at least partially and in increasing in our lives today so that the world may see the peaceable kingdom of Jesus Christ as a reality on earth today. So, dear brothers and sisters, don't pay mere lip service to Christmas. Don't let peace on earth, goodwill toward men be merely a slogan during this season. Don't let the vision of the peaceable kingdom be merely a famous painting reproduced on Christmas cards. Reproduce it in your life. Live it by the power of Christ's Spirit living in you. Live in harmony with one another. Overlook minor offenses. Forgive major offenses. Forgive those who have wronged you. Repay no one evil for evil. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Be kind and gentle with those who oppose you. When you lead others, lead with the humility of a little child. Be a lion. Be a lion. Powerful, majestic. But eat straw like the ox. Give to the poor. Show mercy to the needy. Do what is right in the eyes of God. And day by day, live out your faith in the Savior who has come and who will come. Who even now is with you to the end. When the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And to God be the glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, for his life and death and resurrection, his ascension to your right hand, his rule over the world, and the hope of glory in his coming again. Grant us grace and the power of your Spirit to live in accordance with your word even now as citizens of your peaceable kingdom, to the glory of your name, through Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm the faith of the church of Jesus Christ throughout history and throughout the world as we say together the Nicene Creed. This creed articulates for us the doctrine of, 
of the two natures of Jesus Christ, divine and human, united in one person. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Praise and glory to the Father. Praise and glory to the Son. Praise and glory to the Spirit, ever free and ever one. One in might and one in glory, while unending ages run. You may be seated. Please keep Andrew Brunson in your prayers. Andrew is a pastor in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church denomination who is, has been ministering for years in Turkey. He is now imprisoned in Turkey on false charges um, having to do with uh, the recent failed coup as uh, the Turkish government is beginning uh, to increase its opposition to Christians in Turkey. Please keep Andrew and his wife Noreen in your prayers. We pray for a speedy release. Uh, the United States government is involved, working toward his release. Um, please keep Andrew his wife, in your prayers, and let us also pray that though he is imprisoned, the gospel is not in chains, and that even by his imprisonment, the redeeming work, saving power of Jesus Christ might be made known in a way that glorifies God beyond our imagination. We also commend, uh, keep commend to you Mike Houston, who uh, anticipates beginning his treatment for cancer at MD Anderson uh, the week after Christmas.
our community and our church family was shocked to receive uh, the news that our dear sister in the Lord, Ann Patton, uh, departed this life on Friday evening. And the Lord took her home. She had been hospitalized, was undergoing some tests, but her death was a surprise and shock to us all. Funeral arrangements are tentative and incomplete. You will be notified as soon as those are made definite. We also want to remember in our prayers Anne's mother, Lee Pearson, also a member of Covenant, who was celebrating um, with other family members uh, her own 90th birthday this past weekend. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Let us pray.